Well, to start with, I'll give you a topic, hope versus consolation. And the text is the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. So first of all, realizing you're, you're dealing here with the disembodied souls of dead believers, deceased believers. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out in a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. So we're focusing here on the dead in Christ. Evangelical religion in America has erred, made a mistake, by making death in Christ an object of hope. That popular belief, which has certain political and cultural causes, is false to the New Testament teaching. Death in Christ is blissful, according to the term paradise, applied to the thief on the cross, and it's restful, according to this passage. But it is not glorious, in the same sense that Christian resurrection is glorious, and it's not the object of our hope. It represents continuing consolation, just as the Holy Spirit consoles us now. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says it's preferable to mortal life, but in the same passage, he refers to it as being unclothed, therefore not what we seek. And the passage from Revelation 6 spells out the reality plainly. The souls of martyred Christians cry out to the Lord for vengeance against those who have martyred, uh, who have martyred them, unjustly slain them, and that vengeance is a key ingredient of their future glory and the glory of their future resurrections. But the point is they have not arrived yet, folks, when a saint dies and, as we say, goes to glory, he doesn't fully go to glory. Resurrection is the aim of our hope. Why all this traditional pressure, then, to transfer the Christian hope over from resurrection to death in Christ? The reason is that the actual resurrection is politically and, therefore, socially subversive. Christ tells us in Luke 20, now get the logic of this very closely, Christ tells us in Luke 20 that resurrected saints cannot die. They cannot. That means under any circumstances, they cannot die. In Genesis 9, we learn that the foundation of all Gentile political authority is capital punishment, being killed. Consequently, resurrection man cannot be brought under any form of secular political authority. That is why Christ declares in Matthew 28, 18, as the first resurrection man, that all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, something he never said when he was mortal and something we cannot enter into directly until we too are resurrection men. Consequently, an exaggerated stress on death in Christ rather than resurrection is a direct result of the entente or understanding which the church has sought to achieve with secular authority. We emphasize death in Christ, and death in Christ is being emphasized in pulpits throughout the country for one reason. It's being emphasized rather than resurrection for one reason, in order to appease the powers that be. 
Emphasis on death in Christ is a conservative appeasement strategy because the secularists don't care if we Christians just keep on dying and filling harmless graves. The whole pattern of modern American evangelical Christianity arises out of this entente, this understanding, in effect, a, a compromise between what the Bible actually teaches and the American way. There's a lot of Americanism in our religion. And that's a problem, folks, because this country didn't always exist and it's not always going to exist either. The same was true of the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox. They, too, found themselves having to compromise or establish an understanding between themselves and various secular realms therein. The same is true of the Protestant religion. All forms of professed Christianity have always found some kind of compromise arrangement. And I'm trying to describe for you this morning what compromising with Americanism has done to our religious faith and our hope. As mortal Christians, and we are mortals, we can die at any moment. As mortal Christians, we're never to resist secular political authority in its own sphere of operation. You all know that. You're to be obedient in the area in which politics and the police operate. But we do resist spiritually and ideologically in the mind. We don't think like the secularists. And it takes some doing not to think like the secularists. And I think that what you were talking about is exactly that. You've got to work at repentance. You've got to work at being a Christian rather than an American. You've got to do it. It's not easy. We don't think like the secularists. Our resistance takes the form of protest against compromise within the church. I've already noted my protest toward the evangelical habit of muddling the difference between death and Christ and Christian resurrection. For example, when we sing that song, and it's a beautiful kind of folk melody, I'll fly away. What are you talking about? Are you talking about death in Christ, which it would fit? Or are you talking about the rapture, which it does not fit? Now let's look carefully at the entente or understanding that exists between evangelical Christianity and secular government in the United States. What kind of compromise is going on? To what extent are evangelicals appeasing the secular order? Now let's look carefully at our concept of the rapture, and I'll show you how this compromise is taking place. Now get this, this is the center of what I have to share with you. In mainstream evangelical thought, it has been assumed, and that's all it is, is an assumption, that the transformation of living saints, resurrection of the dead in Christ, and rapture of the church all occur simultaneously. Bang, you're gone. That's what happens to a dead soul. That's not what happens to a raptured saint. But it's been assumed that it's all over. The resurrection of the Christian dead, transformation of living saints, and the rapture all occur in one instant. How convenient for appeasing the secular order. Why? Well, what this doctrine implies is that resurrected believers, and that's us in the resurrection, will never confront the secularists. That doctrine implies that the minute you are in the resurrection state, you'll be taken away so you'll never confront the secularists. Now, Christ at his second advent, we admit, will confront the secularists and he'll wipe them out. He'll destroy them. But we'll never have a role to play in dialoguing with the secular world. We will never answer them in the resurrection state. That's what our doctrine tells us. That's not the truth. We will confront the secularists in the resurrection, but not if it's all like that and we're gone in a flash. This reading of eschatology implies that our Christian salvation program means abstraction from all conflict and a totally abstract relationship to God's justice. Heaven becomes a retirement home, and that's what I'm here to tell you it's not. Heaven is not a retirement home, not for a resurrected saint. And this earth, when you're in the resurrection, is not a retirement home either. It's a Christian police state. That's where we're headed. 
That's where we're headed. We're headed for a rod of iron. The promise is given to us very plainly in Revelation 2, the letter to the Thyatirans, that we, as we overcome in Christ, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that's what's called theocracy. And that's not democracy. And that's not America. But this weaker concept of eschatology that we all just fly away in an instant totally conflicts with Christ's prophecy, as I say, in Revelation 2, verses 26 and 28, where he promises believers that they will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That prophecy, taken literally, promises conquest, victory, a role in enforcing justice, and political power, not to mention the vengeance motif that we see in 2 Thessalonians in the passage we just read, where martyred Christians are in heaven calling for vengeance. That's part of our salvation program. The standard eschatology suggests it's that, that, that it's all by sleeping in a retirement home. That basically you just go to sleep and then Christ wakes you up, tells you it's all over and your enemies are all gone. That's what the doctrine of the simultaneous, instantaneous rapture does to appease secular government by stripping our hope of the resurrection of all of its political implications. Now this doctrine of quick disappearance has arisen out of the very natural fear that subjects all mortal Christians, and that's all of us, to the sword of Romans 13. The text assures us that we need not fear if we're not breaking the law, but as sinners we realize that we might become lawbreakers, and above all, that tyranny can always corrupt the sword of Romans 13. As we cower under the threat posed by our own mortality, and we all do this, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of fear in all of us that we can be punished, we work the Christian hope into an appeasing shape and conclude falsely that the blessed hope means disappearance, escape, irresponsibility, oblivion, an abstract, oblivious, shapeless something called worship. The fact is that God requires worship of us, but worship in a historical context, like a crusader context, and through the medium of history-making, justice-enforcing power. Christ the Just One avenges the saints on the bodies and souls of tyrants, and his immortal church rules the nations with a rod of iron. Heaven is not a retirement home except for the dead in Christ. And so the retirement home version of the rapture simply confuses the consolation of death in Christ with the hope of the resurrection, reducing hope to mere consolation so as to appease the powers that be, no matter how wicked they are. Perhaps some would say that the instantaneous rapture will duplicate the pattern of death in Christ in order to get us out of the way for the Antichrist to work as well as though we were all dead. Many people, I guess, think that. In this view, the rapture is a kind of staged illusion in order to inspire religious delusion on earth. In the very instant that there are no more dead Christians because all have been raised from the dead, God will make it appear, according to this argument, that all Christians everywhere are dead. Because that's what happens. If you just disappear, for all practical purposes, you're dead. According to the prophetic text, the only believers who will be raptured, however, are the resurrected and transformed saints. Why would God ever cause all believers to come alive in order to make them pretend to be dead by disappearing? Why did we ever convince ourselves that resurrection and immortal life mean disappearance? We got it from Matthew 24 through one of the grossest examples of misinterpretation in all history because the disappearance in Matthew 24 is describing a punitive judgment of people being sent to perdition. Two shall be standing in a field. If you think that has anything to do with the rapture, think again, folks, and, and go to our Bible department and ask them. Why did we ever convince ourselves that, that, that salvation meant disappearance? Again, it was to appease the powers that be, 
by neglecting the truth that resurrection man cannot be subject to secular government. You see what I'm saying? What's really going to happen is that we're going to be transformed. We cannot any longer be subject to that government out there. You understand that? And in order to keep that image from popping into our minds, that you're going to be standing there in the face of a policeman who can't do anything to you and a government that can't do anything to you, we've taken ourselves off the face of the earth instantly. That's where we get our appeasing doctrine. Now the time has come to state the true doctrine, which does not appease anyone. Believers will be raised from the dead on earth. And that means that their souls will have to leave paradise to join their bodies on earth. Dead Christians today are going to have to come down. They're not going to go up. They're going to come down. Have you ever envisioned the return of souls out of paradise to join their bodies? What kind of going to heaven is that? Going to heaven. Going to heaven. Everybody has this going to heaven. You should talk about going to join your resurrection body. That's where your salvation is. Christ went to heaven, was in heaven, came down, went back up, go, come back down, go up again. There's nothing permanent about being in heaven. This is what's permanent. The immortal glorified body, that's what's permanent. That's what's redemption. That's what's salvation. This talk about going to heaven comes from the amillennial religion, otherwise known as Roman Catholicism, etc. So this business of souls coming down out of heaven to join their bodies is what we need to focus on. When the apocalypse begins, the souls of the dead in Christ, who've been in paradise, will go to earth, just as Christ did in his incarnation. Because the Bible likens death to sleep, the bodies of the dead in Christ will awaken on earth, just as in the resurrection described in the last chapter of the book of Daniel, where they awaken from the dust of the earth, not the dust of heaven. What will these folk do on earth, these resurrected saints, your brothers and mine in Christ? What will they do on earth? Well, we're told, of course, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture passage, that they will join with those who are alive and remain on earth. The rapture doesn't begin in heaven, but on earth. To be raptured, you have to start out on earth. Saints are not raptured from heaven to heaven, but from earth to heaven. So let's get everybody on earth and then see what happens. That's what many have not done. They've got going to heaven and going to heaven and going to heaven, which is what you do when you die. Your soul does go to a paradise. But that's not what happens to you when you're raised from the dead. And it's when you're raised from the dead that your hope is actually confirmed. So let's see what happens to you when you actually are redeemed, when your body, resurrection body is given to you. The truth is that souls in paradise will return to the earth to take the form of bodies again. And they will do what bodies do. What do bodies generally do? In fact, what's the main thing they do? What's the purpose of having a body? They act and make history. You're redeemed and you're in the ultimate resurrection state not to flit away and dream, but to stay here and do something. The Christian salvation plan is a matter of doing things. And when you're in your resurrection state, you'll be an agent. That is somebody who acts, not flitting away and into a retirement home. The instantaneous rapture doctrine tells us that these souls return to their bodies in order to disappear and pretend to be dead. The truth is that these resurrected and transformed saints will do what Christ did after his resurrection, function on earth for a while to carry out certain tasks, especially the testimony. You know, notice that. What did Christ do when he was raised from the dead? He stayed on earth, what, for 40 days? That's an analogy that should have shown us the truth a long time ago, that after being raised from the dead, we'll stay on earth for a time to carry out certain tasks. We'll be here to function on earth to carry out certain tasks, especially the testimonial activity.
prophesied in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25. That's the key to all of it. I don't have time to go into that parable now, but that's a parable that is discussing what is going to happen when Christians are raised from the dead on the eve of the rapture. The midnight cry is the beginning of the apocalypse. The age comes to an end, your body is transformed, and then you carry out a task of testifying to the foolish virgins and telling them why they cannot be raptured and why they have to become tribulation saints. It's a great commission after we enter the eternal condition. As superhuman immortals, no longer subject to the sword of Romans 13, the resurrected saints will constitute an awesome and terrifying police force, threatening to demolish the separation of church and state and plunge the world into what apostates regard as the nightmare of universal Christian theocracy. Separation of church and state is going to end the instant the apocalypse begins, because you're going to have a church army that is invincible and invulnerable. And what's the only thing that will enable the Antichrist to do what he wants? The church has to leave. So when we finally do leave in the rapture, then that will trigger the behavior of the Antichrist after we have confronted him with a foretaste of millennial glory and millennial theocracy and millennial power and millennial justice, justice, and more justice. This dimension of the Christian hope prophesied in the rod of iron passage in Revelation 2 can affect one's thought and behavior even today. So I guess you'd call this the application stage. What does this concept that you're headed for a police force rather than a retirement home do to your Christianity today? It makes you, and here we go again to what my kind friend said earlier, it makes you prof rather uncompromising. That is, if you know you're headed for a Christian totalitarian state and that it's going to put an end to the particular kind of culture you know now, it creates a tremendous thrill in your soul known as hope. And that hope eclipses everything else. First, one rapidly loses interest in the purely secular future. I'm talking about what happens if you have this glorious vision of the Christian resurrection, where we're raised from the dead to do something, rather than disappearing into a retirement home, what does it do to you? Well, it causes you to prefer this possibility that the apocalypse might happen to all of the secular realities you see around you. You're not, no longer all that interested in the stock market or in American politics. I mean, you have to take some interest in it, but you're not terribly interested in it because you see this thrilling possibility that the apocalypse might begin in our time, could begin this spring, could begin this summer, could begin next fall, and that mere possibility is more powerful than any actuality I can name. That's what's in my heart. The mere possibility that this could happen is greater than anything I can see around me in this world. Those of us who take this position are often misunderstood as though we were only speculating on the future, mistaking mere possibility that the apocalypse might happen soon for reality. I don't do anything of the kind. I know perfectly well that it's conceivable that the apocalypse may not begin in my lifetime. I mean, I can imagine, I can conceive it might not happen in my lifetime, or the next century, or even a thousand years from now. I guess I can conceive of that, but I simply despise that possibility. I know it's possible, I know it's conceivable, but my habit of heart as a, as a hopeful Christian is to despise that and keep my attention fixed where the Corinthian church was fixed. You know, the Corinthians have a lot of bad things said about them. But before you get to the bad things, notice the good thing. 1 Corinthians 1.7, read it. They were eagerly awaiting the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. 
How many of you are eagerly awaiting the apocalypse of Jesus Christ? Now, if you're talking about flying away, that's just waiting to die. We're not talking about waiting to die. We're talking about waiting to see a massive revolution take place that will bring about Christian theocracy and the reign of the name of Christ. You know, in separation of church and state, you can't even, we don't even have, you know, you're almost ashamed. Christianity is no different from Baha'i or Hare Krishna or something. The fact is that in the Christian theocracy, it will be against the law not to be a Christian. Because that's the law of Christ, and that's the law of the universe. Christendom once had it, and they lost it, because they misbehaved, uh, carrying the name of Christ in a political way. Now, many would answer that this choice I'm talking about is unnecessary. Why not hope for the future of America, and then combine that with the apocalypse? And this is really personal. This really comes down to where I'm addressing you as individual fellow Christians. Why not try to combine a kind of hope in the future of America with a hope in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ? That solution violates the difference between consolation and hope. As believers, we ought to hope for the apocalypse exclusively and take consolation that America is better than it might be or it's a privilege to teach at a good Christian college like this college. The Holy Spirit maintains a consolation system for us. That means a good family, a good job. Christian churches, good local churches. Everything in our present tense is mere constellation, folks. That's not our hope at all. Our hope is to get into this immortal condition and really begin to establish the Christian theocracy. To make any element of this consolation, this good job, future of America, whatever, good family, good job, good local church, decent nation, for Christian hope or any dimension of the Christian hope is a secularistic delusion. Secular powers are putting those false hopes into your heart. Consolation means what Romans 2.7 calls patient continuance and well-doing. That's what you're doing now. That's what I'm trying to do now. Our working present tense. And all these things belong to our sustaining present tense. If we ever refer to them as our future, in some ideal sense, if you think you're going out into your future just because you get married or you get a job, you don't know what you're talking about. The American Republic has put something into your heart that shouldn't be there because the only true future we have is the apocalyptic future. Consolation is necessary but not sufficient. Without it, we'd fall into despair, but in itself it does not constitute hope. When the Holy Spirit inspires hope, he does so by means of the Christian apocalypse, not by means of the future of the America or the future of the church short of the apocalypse. One is either eagerly awaiting the apocalypse, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, or one is not. That's a, very, that's a challenge to all of you. That's your heart right now. You're either hoping for this thing exclusively or you're not hoping for it at all. Don't try to combine it with anything else because it won't combine with anything else. That, again, was the theme you're bringing up. The, the Christian apocalyp apocalyptic hope just will not combine with anything else. You cannot combine it with any other value system. The apocalypse is not a specialty topic reserved for something called prophecy conferences, but the beginning of an entirely new life history. And as such, it supplants every other hope point for point, detail for detail. It means a different version of everything you value today, a different version of Christ, visible rather than invisible. Let's go down the list. Everything you value today will be different in the apocalypse and infinitely better. A visible version of Christ rather than the invisible one that you and I know today. A different version of the church, resurrected rather than mortal. A different version of the earth, with immortals on it rather than mortals only. A different version of politics, theocracy, rather than the secular state. Because of this either-or conversion of everything, you cannot have your cake and eat it too.
You either hope for the counter world of the apocalypse exclusively so that you have no other hope, or you do not hope for it at all. Now, this is where Christ's address to the Laodiceans comes out, and I have to cover this briefly, but I need to cover it. The problem of the Laodicean church and Laodicean lukewarmness. It goes straight to what I'm talking about today. The Laodiceans were a church, like ours today, which could not make up its mind what it was hoping for. Although the word hope never appears in the text of Revelation 2 and 3, because the speaker there is an immortal to whom mortal hope has no meaning, hope has everything to do with the lukewarmness of the Laodicean church. Because hope is an anticipation of immortality being in this resurrection state. The immortal speaker in the text is revolted by an attitude of indifference toward immortality which he himself represents. The Lord is infuriated by Christian people who do not hope for immortality intensely and are trying to combine some kind of Christian hope and some kind of Christian faith with a lot of secular values. In other words, when an immortal like Christ encounters a mortal who does not have the right sort of hope, he perceives this problem as a foolish dog in the manger apathy toward himself. Revelation 2 and 3 records a dialogue between the first resurrection man and people who were supposed to be becoming resurrection men eventually. That's why he twice compares spiritual victors in these churches to himself, paralleling himself in his resurrection state with the victorious Christian, meaning we are to become resurrected saints like him ultimately winning the victory. The problem of the latest scenes is that they were a kind of city-state republic like the Florentines or like the Republic of Virginia, the United States of America. Citizens of such a republic are taught to place their hope in their own mortal future. Get that. The secularistic world in America is seducing your soul to believe in your secularistic future in lieu of true Christian apocalyptic hope. It's that secularistic hope that the Lord is excoriating in Revelation 3.17, where he says, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, which is certain certainly true of America, and have need of nothing. Need of nothing for what purpose? To command the future. The Laodiceans, like the Americans, have substituted their own mortal resources for the Christian hope of immortality. Consequently, in the remainder of 317 of Revelation, the speaker throws in their faces the grotesque picture of human mortality from the immortal perspective. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Why? Because you're not yet in the resurrection state. All of us are all of those things. And there's no shame in it if we admit it. But if we're trying to take something that is now wretched and now miserable and now poor and now blind and naked and build a future out of that, we're deluded. Personally, I say no to all forms of hope in our secular republic. Rather than forfeit one jot or tittle of 1 Corinthians 1, 7, I would rather die of starvation in a dirty, miserable ditch like everybody else, I need and desire to be consoled. But I won't be duped into confusing consolation with the grand, sublime, transcendent, supernatural, democracy-defying content of the actual apocalyptic Christian hope. The kingdom of heaven made up of resurrected saints. That's my nation. And it ought to be yours as well. Rather than half America, two-fifths church and something else. Our true hope is centered in 1 Corinthians, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. I want to focus on that to the end of the message. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. I won't read it, but you can open to it and read it as I'm commenting on that great verse. That mystery 
of 1 Corinthians 15, 51 is the true hope of the premillennialist soul. And I'm a premillennialist. This other version, this business of going off to heaven when you die, that's the amill religion, folks. Whether it's Catholic or Protestant or Evangelical, whatever, that's the amill religion. The premill religion, the premill hope is in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I shall, I show you a, a, a mystery which shall not all sleep. Now, that hope can fail us in its immediate form. That is, my life might not be intercepted by the end of the, the apocalypse. And so I can't be certain that that thing's going to happen to me in my lifetime. But I want to show you personally what it means to take that hope of 1 Corinthians 15, 51 as, as personally as you can. Well, let me back up for a moment before I get down to this. But we want to focus on 1 Corinthians 15, 51. The Bible tells us next to nothing about the character of heaven apart from resurrection. It tells us a great deal about the glorious resurrection which I seek. So faith has more data to work on with regard to resurrection. And to the believer who's built his faith on the New Testament rather than amillennial tradition, the resurrection inspires a thousand times as much hope as does the transitory paradise. That's called heaven, folks. You understand why it's transitory? When a soul dies, yes, they go up to heaven. But when they're raised from the dead, which is their hope, they come back down to earth to join their body and play a role on the earth for a while before the rapture. Then they leave again, and then they come back again to reign in the millennial kingdom. Just as hope properly understood leads to certain conclusions, the consolation system without rigorous hope leads to something called sentimentality. If you turn into a sentimentalist, for one thing, the notion that the dead in Christ that death in Christ is the object of our hope is sentimental. It is cloaked in brainless emotionalism and muddled feelings about family values. The sentimentalist says that he wants to go to be with his dear Savior, forgetting that the actual dead in Christ pictured in our opening passage are calling on their dear Savior to wreak vengeance on their unjust enemies. Why aren't they up there playing harps, enjoying heaven, according to our stereotype? Plunk, 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 I'm happy in the Lord. Here I am. See, they're not doing that. They're calling for vengeance because the, the love of justice is implanted in the image of God. And it's the love of justice that led us to premillennial theology. And it's the love of justice that led me to the conception of the rapture that I have, that when you're transformed, you'll be here for a while to justly play out a certain role according to the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. It's the love of justice. And the sentimentalist doesn't have a whole lot of love of justice. The sentimentalist has a way of screening such passages as Revelation 6 out of his mind, lest the word of God corrupt his traditional religion. This sort of sentimental screening process reduces scripture, truth, to a kind of stale mush. Sentimentalism takes many forms in the evangelical non-fundamentalist religion. One is the business that you spend the rest of your life striking a pose so as to be winsome or attractive to non-believers. Now, we ought to be decent and kindly and forbearing and patient with non-believers. But the fact of the matter is that the non-believers call the plays in secular society. And spiritually speaking, we have to stiff-arm them in many ways through prophetic hope. Now, it's, the, it's, it's folly, the fool's logic, to assume that death in Christ is the object of our hope. When the dead in Christ finally arrive at the appointed hour of their hope, their souls descend from paradise to join their bodies on earth. The mainstream religion says, because the secular state wants it to say, that we attain our hope by going to heaven. That's what they want. That way they got you down in the grave. 
They've got you, if they don't bury you, you smell up the place, but at least they've got you buried under the surface of the so soil. They've got you out of the way so they don't have to worry about you. But if they knew what you really believe about the future of your resurrection state and that that has a political significance, things would be different. There'd be a bit of tension between us and them to make peace. Maybe we just uh, keep, keep them from knowing it, I guess. The mainstream religion says because the secular state wants it to say that we attain our hope by going to heaven. Whereas our hope is attained the instant the souls of Christians descend to earth to join their bodies while living saints are transformed on earth. The secular state does not want you to believe that, but it's the truth. To believe the truth, you have to pay a social price. As Melville said, the truth is ridiculous to men. And the concept of a resurrection that will put us in the face of the secularist seems impossibly ridiculous to a lot of people. It's not ridiculous, it's not impossible, it's going to happen. The truth does not come to us via family feeling, patriotism, or familiar tradition. It comes by repentance, which as you know means change of mind, and by spiritually resisting the way of the world, the way the world thinks. And as I've just told you, the world loves to turn you over to some graves, another generation, more babies, more corpses, more babies, more corpses, ad infinitum but no resurrection state, no transformation of the world into a theocracy, no millennial kingdom, no rod of iron held by Christians. At the outset of December 1993, I composed a poem on the stark reality of the actual Christian hope, so you know I'm very near the end of our period here if I mention a poem. <laughs> I composed a poem on the stark reality of the actual Christian hope in contrast to the cozy sloppiness of American religion. I'll just give you the opening stanza of it. It's free verse, so it doesn't rhyme. Here's what it really means to embrace the actual hope of that glorious transformation of 1 Corinthians 15:51. Beyond the limit of family and friends, the thing that we have in Christ goes far beyond the limit of any feeling you have for your parents or your brethren or your friends. It's too glorious to even be measured by the family standard. Beyond the limit of family and friends, Outside a warm and cheery dining room pane, underneath a black December limb, stands the uninvited, unexpected apparition of a swift and frightening transformationist whom even lightning cannot subdue." Unquote. The Christian hope lies in 1 Corinthians 15:51. Read it and think about it. I challenge you all to do that, to read and think about 1 Corinthians 15:51 and what that means for justice, for politics, for your future, for theocracy. Read it and think about it. When you read the words, we shall all be changed, do not read into it, we shall all disappear. Change does not mean disappearance. Unfortunately, some Christians have read that verse, and they, when they read change, they just read into it disappearance. It doesn't talk about disappearing. Change does not mean disappearance. When you read the words, we shall all be changed, do not read into it, we shall all go to heaven. That's, that's very popular. We'll all go to heaven. The fact is the text doesn't utter one syllable. It's a long discussion of the resurrection state in 1 Corinthians 15. There's not one syllable, not one half syllable about going anywhere, much less heaven. It's just the resurrection. So don't read into it. We'll all go to heaven. The text doesn't refer to going anywhere. When you read the words, we shall all be changed, and this is the summation of my message for you this morning, Try to think clearly about change. <laughs>